0: Allison Knowlton Mason.
1: I'm Stanley Bradley, and we're friends turned family, getting together to tell stories, laugh, observe, and think. This
0: is the family meeting. All right, here we are. We are excited to welcome another member of our family. And uh, this is someone who we were just reflecting that we haven't talked to in a long time. So we are excited to kind of see what's up with you, dig into your brain a little bit. And you're like so smart, which <laughs> is a common theme amongst all of our our guest but welcome Lacante. Hey. Hey. Hi. Good to be here. Um why don't you start by telling us just like who are you what uh how do you know us and then what do you do? Sure. So
2: my name is Lacante Lacante Dill. Um I'm from South Central LA that will probably come up <laughs> throughout the episode. Um lived lots of places. Uh we'll talk about my most recent move. Um, but I met Stan in, um, the Atlanta University center, um, Spellhouse, uh, Spellhouse. Stan, he went to Morehouse. <laughs> and in January, 1999, we were in the same class intro to public health.
1: Okay. I'm going to um, stop you right here. Cause this is funny to me because I feel like you were such an integral part of my college experience. I feel like we met before that. Like i like, when I think about school. Yeah, I think was, about you, and I'm like at the I end of your. I it know it's so, so weird. I'm like I felt like I knew you at least two years. Aww, yeah, same. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it was yeah. your senior year, my junior year. We were yeah. intro
2: to public health class together. Um, Dr. Bill Jenkins was our professor. Yes. yes. And um, for those of you learning um, on the podcast, um, he's actually integral in ending or helping to end the Tuskegee syphilis study.
1: Yes. Wow. So he
2: yeah. was a biostatistician and an epidemiologist, one of the first epidemiologists at the CDC and the U.S. Public Health Service. And but he also came up, he went to Morehouse, he came up in the AUC and during the civil rights movement, he was in SNCC, he was in the civil rights movement. So he was an activist, um, in addition to being a scholar and a scientist. Yeah. And he was looking at data, <laughs> uh, but also realizing in the early 70s, late 60s, early 70s, that Penicillin had been discovered as a treatment for syphilis. So why are we still doing this research study? Um, and when he told his colleagues at the CDC and the Public Health Service, they knew. Like it wasn't like he like found this you know mystery um, answer. Um, they knew, and they were not stopping the study. So he leaned on his activist um, upbringing um, and reached out to like his activist friends, and they used the media um, and wrote. Uh, uh, news articles that got picked up by the Associated Press um, about the outrage of continuing Tuskegee. So that was our professor. Yes. Um, <laughs> and he brought all of that into the classroom. So yes. he was rigorous and tough and was teaching us statistics and encouraging us really? to go to grad school, but he also would come, he's Gullah Geechee yeah. um, from the Carolinas. And so he would come in rocking a white t-shirt that was like Gullah Geechee. See, yes. Best, yeah. And <laughs> his khakis and his Birkenstocks. Yes. And was um,
1: like, yeah.
2: Yeah, he just brought it all in like such a model of like how to be in the classroom for me. And Stan and I were, um, I was scared of Dr. Jenkins at first, but, um, he liked both of us yeah
1: and he did it was weird i i i'm i'm thinking about that class now and you and it was chanel right yeah she in that class too yeah and i don't i'm trying to think about what made the three of us gravitate together right but he really liked us right as like the three of us for some reason but i don't know if we just sat together but i just remember feeling like a kindred spirit with you two
2: yeah, and definitely. we started
1: hanging out and I guess maybe studying
2: together. Definitely study groups like meeting in the library, but also Stan had a car. Yeah, um, and Chanel and I didn't. So sometimes we like study like off campus or we had field trips in that class. So like, yeah. oh, we rolling with Stan. Stan yeah, could take us to the CDC. Stan could take us to Whatever. Or whatever. March, then we go into whatever. Get something going to eat. Eat. Yeah. <laughs> go to, look, we used to go to Emory, Just do all
1: kinds of stuff. Dr. James yeah.
2: is an ancestor now. He passed away in 2019. Um, but over the years, I would see him at conferences and you mentioned Chanel, Chanel, and I would always see him and we would do a selfie together. And so um, I just love, and this is a, a testament to the AUC that those professors become lifelong mentors. And that doesn't mean like we're talking to them every day, but when you see them, it's like it's like the 90s.
1: Yeah. And they, like, they, they foster those connections. And that's what the AUC does in general. It like fosters those connections. And then it also, like in the AUC is where you first, like for me was where some stuff that I knew intuitively was taught to me intellectually. Like, you know about black resistance, right. like you hear that from your family, But when you got like, like you said, Tuskegee, we all knew about Tuskegee because we're Southern, we're Black. But like the act, like when he talked about like Tuskegee, no, Tuskegee was not them. Like he explained the details, which is important now when you're talking about anti-vax people not using it wrong. Like the, we all know, like people think that it's, they gave them syphilis. No, they had syphilis, but like you said, they were leaving it untreated when they knew what the treatment was.
2: And not just the details, they also were like, I was there. So, you know, yes, a lot of people yes. were like, I marched with Martin Luther King. Our professors literally, not just Martin, but they went to school with him when he was 16 at Morehouse, you know? Yeah. And I think I think they also showed us that human side that like a professor is not only like stuffy with like elbow patches, but, but you know, they were they pledged when yes. they were in college. they There's pictures that sometimes some, like Dr. Kamara Jones, Dr. Bill Jenkins, they started organizations like after work, like basically at happy hour, after work, they were like the one black person in their unit at the CDC. And then they would all meet up after work and commiserate and vent. But then that's how they were like, okay, we need to start this internship for the up and coming students. We need to start this organization. We need to infiltrate this way. But they they were at dinner, (laughs) they were at happy hour. So to realize that like they have full lives too, families but also social lives like it was amazing to see that as a a a young adult
1: yeah definitely
2: and then I met Allison through Stan of course um in 2009 at Cafe Circa so I had come back to Atlanta for an internship at the CDC CDC is a theme, I guess. Um, And it was like a a homecoming for me. Like I often, I'm I'm from the West Coast and went back to the West Coast after the AUC. And so it was always like, I got to get back to Atlanta, you know, whether that's homecoming or reunion, or I'm like an internship, that's a a second home for me. And so I had gotten the summer internship. um, It was a great internship, but really that summer was about like just connecting with my Atlanta roots. My friend, it was just like a fun Summer. Yeah. Um. And so I'd hung out with Stan a few times, but it was my like going away <laughs> dinner. <laughs> um. I was going back to the Bay Area where I lived at the time, but I had like a final dinner. Um. And Stan had already talked to me about you, Allison. Mm-hmm. Um. And it's funny, <laughs> like I feel like I'm getting to know you through the podcast. Um. And so getting to know your own your stories about your own coming to consciousness in Atlanta. But when Stan told me about you, he said that you were like the militant social justice par- part of their crew he was well, really <laughs> well because like he was like but again it's because it you're off
1: you're you always off with these, edu- these white educators but you're honest like you've always like i mean i i think you you're honest so you're going huh. to say it like can i just like you talk about Depard all the time and you're like Depard was hella racist like you say that yeah. and you said that even in 2002 before your renaissance yeah. So you, you always spoke honestly. So I'm sure, yeah, I can believe that.
2: So I, so I heard about this social justice about to set it off crunk, like conscious person. And then you came to the dinner at cafe circa. Uh-huh. Um, and I remember, I just remember you had a, a beautiful like necklace. Um, and so I was like, really like a fan, like, I'm like your style, like you were, you were a fly. <laughs> and I think like, that was like one of the only times we saw each other in person. The Truly. rest of like Facebook likes. Yeah. <laughs> I feel yeah. like, I, I know you through Stan or, I, you know, we don't yeah. know each other through mm-hmm. Facebook, but, you know, I get to, and then the podcast. And so um, I just know that you're, you know, you're definitely family to Stan. So that makes you family to me.
1: Exactly, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And inviting to the yes.
2: podcast gets me to see Stan.
1: <laughs> I, the who, other you know, the I, other running theme through this. Through these, I know, I like, oh,
2: everybody goes through this. Like,
1: nobody <laughs> knows where Stan is. But like, okay, let's do some <laughs> feel called out but you're like the fifth person that said this it was and a so-
2: few, few of us in Spelman and like across the years at Spelman that was like okay I think he has a new number here's his new number oh he's on Twitter he's not on Facebook oh I saw him proof of life I saw him okay go call him right now
0: I mean that's half that's half the connections that I have with some of the people who only know you. I'm like, let me get this person. Let me DM this person. I'll be like, hey, can I get your phone number? Have you talked to Stan? I'm, I'm gonna drive to his house. Don't. I'll let you know what I find
1: out when I get there.
0: Just going missing always. I
1: try to do better, folks. I'm trying to do better. Allison is holding me accountable. I've well, I'm like, better. you have
0: to talk to me every every week now. Every week. <laughs> So you can't go, you can only go missing for six days at a time because know, I'm like, you're I supposed know. to be on this podcast.
1: Meanwhile, my coworker who listens to the podcast is like, I'm going to start giving folks my number two so <laughs> that you can. <laughs> so okay. that when you go
0: missing, we'll be like, did he come to work?
1: Yes. <laughs> I love it. I love it.
0: So what are you doing for oh, work
2: now, um, <laughs> So I'm a professor. Um, I'm trained in public health. We talked about that. Um, but I'm really excited because I'm currently in the Department of African American Studies. Um, I've always been about Black folks <laughs> um, and Black health. And now I feel like I can unapog- unapologetically do that, not just work on health disparities or work on people of color and health, but like, oh, I study Black girl wellness and I and I partner with Black girls and and document their stories. Um, I'm also a poet. Um, I've been a poet longer than I've been an academic um, and used to keep those lives separate, Um, not necessarily intentionally, maybe subconsciously, Um, but when I um, went back to get my doctorate, I really felt like those sides had to come together. And so I I bring my poetry into my research. Um, I'm a wife and a mother. I have an 18-month-old, so I... um, I'm, uh, active, (laughs) like running after an active 18 month old and, and, um, I'm remembering my playful side. Um, I think I like to play and always, even before becoming a mother and reminded my friends to like play, but now I'm really like, oh, like what's this hand game again? And like, what's this nursery rhyme? And and a lot of up and down and, and running. Um, and so, um, that's what I do. And then I, um, recently the summer became a certified meditation instructor. Um, mm-hmm. I came to meditation my last year of my doctoral program because of stress <laughs> of academia. Um, and before that, I was like, I can't meditate. I don't know how to do it. Right. Is there a book? What do I have to wear? What do I have to do? Like all this anxiety about it. Um, or I was like, for hippies and people are like you're kind of a hippie <laughs> and but by by my last year of my doctor program I was like I need some stillness I need some rest I need to connect back with my breath and my body and was the fortunate thing is that I didn't have to know what to do I could just show up in spaces that had guides and so I kind of over the last 11 years have gone from like I don't know what to do to like I have 10 meditation apps on my phone. I'm like reminding friends to meditate. And then I began like leading students in guided meditation because they're stressed um, and because of life and academia. And this year um, was able to actually get formally trained um, in it. And so I look forward to doing more of that in a informal, informal way.
1: Wow, that's awesome.
0: I love that. I connect to so many things that you said. So the first thing I would like to point out. So we have a Google Doc that we like all kind of put notes into for, as we prep for podcasts. LaConte put her notes in, I promise you, in like poet form. Like I was, as I was just like glancing down, I was like, are these poems? <laughs> I, like, I was like, this is fabulous. So that's I can what Everyone see. was like,
2: you talk in poetry, like wherever Literally. I am. Like even one of my therapists was like, is this a poem? <laughs>
0: Seriously, like, do so do more of that. Do more of that. <laughs> so I can see how that is like something that would be hard to separate out for you because it feels so natural just to the way that you communicate. Um, And the second thing is that I also have recently started to do some meditation. Also, like you felt very intimidated by it. I was like, I don't even know how. Like I was like, right. when I sit down, I end up just thinking, which I could do not with my with my legs uncrossed. And <laughs> <In a, Right. laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like I don't know why I need to sit down and do this. But it, if if you do it and you keep doing it, there's things to find there. So I have also found a lot of peace, especially, you know, in this business, whole owning a business thing is like, like you, I'm like, I need some stillness, I need some some quiet in my head. Yeah. Um, and that's been very helpful. Um and then the last thing, and I, I spoke about this before we started recording, is like, I'm so fascinated by your journey as a mother. We're similar ages. Um, as I began kind of thinking about this. And so I'm very curious there, but also. Yeah. This leads us into our first question. Um, you know, when I think you you talk about chasing around the active 18 month old, I'm sure a lot of what you're doing is teaching um, through experience and and you know explicitly, implicitly. And so, um, one of the questions that we dove into last time, we'd love to hear you talk about, is who are who were some of your first teachers?
2: Yeah um so definitely my mom um who will be listening when we watch this so Hi, deb. <laughs> debbie deb deb I, know. Um, I feel like i know deb i know and you <laughs> met her i did twice. yeah um so my mom Deborah sterling um she's also born and right raised in south central la um and she doesn't necessarily identify like as a teacher or a black feminist um but was my first Black feminist teacher educator, um, just by like the books that she had just around our house. And she wasn't like, read this, but it was just there. Um, And the ways that she um, was an advocate for my own education, just really realizing the educational inequities in South Central and the ways that she had to advocate for me to have better opportunities. And that meant being very vigilant or signing up for this workshop or applying for this. Um, but also I think the ways that she has fun and kind of balances like work and play. Um, definitely was my first and most favorite um teacher. And um, I just posted about my new job and she wrote, she's like, Your first and favorite cheerleader. And I was like, Oh, you were. Um yeah, and she's like very sweet, but also like was crip walking with me at my baby shower. <laughs> like, <laughs> So she can go crock too. And I guess we're continuing the legacy. (laughs) Um, She got it from her mama. I got it from my mama. And now my daughter is getting it from all of us. Um, (laughs) So definitely them, uh, my mom, um, my nana's. um, who are both ancestors, my paternal and maternal um, grandmothers helped to raise me. I, my mom um, was mostly a single mother, and um, but I spent a lot of time, my mom worked nights and weekends, so I spent a lot of time with my grandparents, particularly my grandmothers. Um, and again, like learn that mix. They were both, so my paternal grandmother is from Texas, my maternal grandmother is from Arkansas um, and and both migrated to LA um, in in the 1940s when they were in their 20s, um, part of the Great Migration, um, the second wave of the Great Migration. Um, And um, so had a lot of those Southern roots, but also were not the kind of migrants that were like, oh, I miss the South, I want to go back. Um, they were like, no, I left for a reason, <laughs> um, for various reasons and, and really grew up in LA, in, in urban LA. Um, and so like Southern roots, traditions, recipes, practices, and rituals, but also like the LA turn <laughs> <Like, laughs> up, like, and that's like raising family in this like urban metropolis. Um, my aunts, I definitely grew up um, around my parents, siblings, and, and then their kids, um, And then I feel like South Central, my neighborhood was a teacher for me. Um, The ways that it was changing, the ways that it was vibrant, um, the sounds like even like the sounds of sirens (laughs) um, as as soothing (laughs) in a way. Um, But also I think at a very young age, just being in South Central, I really understood um, risk and resilience. And so, Mm I knew that the LAPD was a a violent force at a young age, Um, you know, that's not a great thing to know at a young age, but I knew that. Um, The crack epidemic, you know, (laughs) was hitting LA hard um, um, in the 80s. Um, But also, like, when I think about, like, Rich Auntie music, like like R and B music. I think of Home, and actually, I didn't know this at the time, but the the R and B station KJ KJLH stands for Kindness, Joy, Love, and Happiness, and oh. you know that's where I listened to Anita and Karen White. I don't know if I should have been singing Superwoman when I was like nine, but but we all knew the lyrics. We knew uh, all but the that, lyrics though. So that radio station actually was owned by Stevie Wonder, and so I like had this soundtrack of like Home that I feel like taught me. So like I was singing Freddie Jackson on the way to school. while <laughs> my lady, me and my mom, like on the way to school, um, going up Normandy Avenue, like when I was in second grade. And so I feel like the sounds of home taught me too.
1: That's beautiful. That's beautiful, yes. If you meet Laconte, like you know what they say. You're gonna have a, a South Central. Like I went out there one time, she was like, you come in. I, was th- I think I was like in Riverside. She's like, that's close enough. Y'all coming to Roscoe's? <laughs> We're gonna go to the swap we meet. We did go to Roscoe's. We, we went to Ro- like a celebrity. We saw some random football player or basketball <laughs> player or something. We went to like the real Roscoe's, the one that's in South Central. Went to the swap meet. Went to like We're a going festival. To Brand,
2: Sloss yeah. and swap meet. Oh, I'm a good. I'm a good hood tour guide. <laughs> and Like and you'll learn the history. You will see the like. You'll get your Instagram photos, but you'll also learn the history. And then my mom, if my mom, my mom probably told you a story, even though yes. you only met her for a second. Like, yeah, hey, mom, I'm about to leave. She probably gave you a story.
1: Yeah, <laughs> and like what I remember is besides your teaching and just being a good tour guide, like you saw the real South Central because at that time, you know, people, the stereotypes, the the LA uprising of '92. Yeah, I think you asked like, me.
2: You're like, what color can I wear? What color <laughs> should I wear? Like, yeah. You know.
1: Like, it's not that serious it's it's 2000 like let that go watching so much tv yeah that but like you got you get to see the authentic and in all of its various forms yeah and like just the places that we are from i think are our first teachers because even me like like i said alabama is it's deep yeah it's deep in me and i think that's the way you feel about south central
0: definitely definitely I would love to follow up on one thing you said specifically how your mom taught you about the intersection between work and play. Could you go yeah. go in more depth about that and like how that's showing up in your you know early days as a mother? Yeah. So I feel like
2: all my family was definitely like, you can play after you do your homework. You have to do your homework. Mm-hmm. But I went to private school <laughs> K through 12. So I was never done with my homework, but I feel like my mom's mantra was no, go outside. Like, did you get some fresh air today? Um, And then, like I said, like music was all around. So it was always like a dance party, even if it was just like me and her. Um, And so one of my friends is like, you're like the play priestess, like even before I became a mother. And so I think I'm always like, I tell my students, I remind them to rest. Um, Mm -hmm. Pre-COVID, I was like, make sure, you know, you take off during spring break and have a fun, like most professors are not like telling their students <laughs> to like, yeah, have fun or turn up or, I mean, but there's, there's, there can be, I, I say a lot, of, a lot of times now I'm like, play can be rigorous too. Like how can we bring mm. that rigor to our play in addition to our work? Um, So yeah, I feel like just watching my mom that she
1: does that and did that.
0: Wow. I'm writing that down. Play can, be, can rigorous. be rigorous, too.
1: our first word, play can be rigorous.
0: <laughs> it's not surprising that it came this early in the conversation. Um, so p- pivoting to the next question, how would you say that your formal learning, so you said you went to private school all this time, and then you guys have talked about, it made me fairly jealous that I didn't go to an HBCU, but um, how would you say that your formal learning has impacted your overall approach to learning? Yeah, so my first school, kindergarten
2: through sixth grade was um in South Central, Um, it was a private, it was Christian school, and it was down the street, literally from my paternal grandparents' house, and it was connected to the church that my aunts went to, so it was definitely, like, a home place, and it was all Black teachers, mostly Black women teachers, and it was a family, Um, and so I feel like early on, you know, like, there's a lot of, like, questions being asked, particularly in this moment of racial reckoning about, like, Oh, when did you first have your Black teacher? And, you know, in addition to my home life, which I talked about, I'm like, oh, kindergarten. (laughs) Um, And this was fortunate that I had seven Black teachers during my elementary. And I feel like no matter what happened after that, and we can talk about that pivot too, (laughs) that was my strong foundation. Um, And they affirmed us as learners, like, being smart and wasn't like you're not square even though we were like in the hood it was like no everybody's smart um and I remember Uh, like the standardized tests we were like proud that we achieved like two grade levels whatever above it wasn't like a bad thing Um, and I mentioned my mom's advocacy and so even before I was graduating so before sixth grade like so by fourth grade my mom was already thinking about middle school (laughs) um and there was some recruiters that would come to our school to recruit for independent schools so kind of like a better a better chance but this was like a smaller um smaller shop um locally in la called the alliance um the independent school alliance for minority affairs so they would go to different schools in la and recruit students to apply to private independent schools and usually they would come talk to sixth grade parents um, at the beginning of, of their children's sixth grade year at the PTA meetings. Well, Deborah <laughs> started going to those meetings when I was in fourth grade. Um, and so I was like the only fourth grade student in that meeting with my mama. And she was like taking feverish notes. And she's still a note taker. Like, even when I just talked to her, like, I'm gonna talk to her about this podcast later tonight. She's gonna write on the back of that envelope, uh, I lo- All- Allison, one L or two. Like, <laughs> she's like oh, stand. The man <laughs> so she was feverishly taking notes about about this independent school process which as you as educators know um is a process like it was like applying to college there was interest exams there was essays and personal statements there were interviews so i i learned about this when I was like 10 but when i was 12 i had to go to interviews at multiple schools and wow i don't know how <laughs> i did that i mean not you know nothing you know i I was smart and bright, but like that's just such an intense process for a twelve-year-old. And I got into like all the schools I applied to and got a lot of scholarships. And so my my black hood Christian school, then I you know kind of became like oh the content got another scholarship. $5,000, $7,000. $5,000, $7,000. Um, and that then began a little bit of a shift where before I said, everyone was like proud to be a scholar, but then, you know, we're about to leave this home place. Everybody's like, oh, who you think you are getting those scholarships? Like why are you leaving school early to go to an interview? Um, and so that was, I guess, showing the, the, the shift. <laughs> And, and it's adolescence and like I study adolescence now and I'm like, oh, that's why I study it because so much happens at 12. Um, my paternal grandmother actually passed that same year. Um, and so it was a lot of like ruptures. Like I'm leaving this home place, my first big family death. And then I, I get into this great school but it's half an hour away from my home. It's literally on two different hills. It's like a main hill and then the school is on a hill. Um, and there is only a sprinkle of Black students. Um, And so in this moment, this recent moment of racial reckoning, um, when a lot of um, uh, high school students and middle school students were on Instagram talking about being a student of color, being BIPOC at, um, I found my school's page, and I was triggered like about, that they were kind of recounting the same types of racism that they are experiencing now. Um, And I'm like, this is like, 30 years ago. Um, And so, so much so that my my husband was like, uh, turn off, you know, (laughs) log off, like stop reading. Um, I had a great education at this independent school, but it was very racist and very classist in the micro and macro ways. And so I think when I talked about, when you asked me learning, the learning was to call out that injustice. And um, I, I also like calling out the white stream canon. So it's not mainstream, like all these white people that we're taught to read and and, and read about and write about when we're coming through school. It's not mainstream, it's white stream. And I always was a student like, can I pick somebody else to write about? Like, I always was um, like, going to the bookshelf, <laughs> going to my mom's bookshelf okay. and like doing the alternative project um, and was sometimes me and the few black students there were like, are they a gang? Like people said that, like, are you a gang? Um, and then asked about like, can I touch your hair? Um, you live in the hood. And then the the LA uprising happened when I was in eighth grade. And so people were like, are you going to be able to come back to school? Um, and so it was definitely, um, a lot of code switching which i didn't know as a term at the time but i think also realizing when you don't want to code switch and you're not going to so that kind of negotiation i was i didn't have the language for it i also didn't have the models for it because my family was like you in this good school we proud of you better stay at the school and i was like i don't want to go to school like i want to go i want to go to school in the hood even a private school in the hood can i go to a catholic school around the neighborhood around the neighborhood and um yeah, so it was a lot of not knowing um not having models, like not always being seen. And that's why like <laughs> I mean, I wanted to go to Spelman since I was little, even before this high sc- middle school and high school experience, but I was like I have to go to Spelman. <laughs> like I like I need this for my soul.
1: Wow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's White Stream. <laughs> It 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 makes perfect sense. It's, it's yeah. the best, because I mean, yeah, I love that term. This
0: should not be new to me, but it feels very new to me. And I- it, It's out there though. More people are doing work on this. So um, I just borrow from
2: them. But it's yeah. It's
0: fascinating because that's true. It, it's like, we're taught to think that that's the, the way and that if we do something different, we're like outside of this general yeah. way of thinking. But that way of thinking has been curated. Yeah. It's fascinating, fascinating, fascinating. Um, Whoo! Sorry, I'm would so stressed. <laughs> Go <laughs> take
2: your, your breath. Um, <laughs> I really blossomed as a poet during that time. So I started writing poetry actually during this pivotal 6th grade year and my 6th grade teacher, um Ms. Prescott, um she also is an ancestor now, but she really just affirmed me as a poet. But I'm glad that I had that toolkit because then I blossomed poet as a poet um as a teenager in this white like, stream world of education, where like my poetry was like my my bomb or where I would go to to vent or to process. And then began like publishing some of it and, and, and would be like black, 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 you know, like my poem would be like black girl, black girl, black girl. And I'm like, I'm keeping that same energy. But then it was like a protest. Um, like I remember one time in a history class we were studying like counterculture movements. So me and my friend were like, we definitely talk about the Panthers. We're to be we talking about Malcolm X. We're bringing in some bean pies. I was like, <laughs> white kids ate that bean pie up? But like, I feel like there was this hyper, sometimes when you're in spaces and you're like, oh, black, 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 <laughs> you know? And um, just, I guess, listening to like what parts of that are protective and then what parts of that are just like a response. <laughs> Um, and then what parts of that are authentic. But I definitely was in a mode um of and I remember I was, I was talking to my husband yesterday and like the red hot chili peppers um kind of became popular during that time. And black people love the chili peppers, but then that time I was like, I don't like them. They white. So I don't <laughs> like them. I think I missed out on some things that are just like good pop culture. I was like, no, nope, like
1: <laughs> this is enough, black. I'm black. I love it. Um, but I'm, go ahead. No, I was just thinking about though, like even through all of that transition, I'm thinking about still how important that, how much different it could have been had you not had those roots, right? Mm-hmm. Cause that's something we've talked about a lot in, I mean, that's kind of one of the other running themes through this season is that pretty much the people that we've talked to have had a strong community roots. Yeah. And so even when you're kind of pulled out of that community in some ways it's, well, in most ways it's gonna come out cause it's deep in you yeah. and it's gonna come out and it's gonna manifest itself in different ways. And you may not even know that that's what's manifesting, but yeah. Yeah, definitely. because
2: particularly like black kids or students of color at these independent schools, not everyone is like, I'm proud to be from the hood. I'm proud to be like a scholarship kid or I'm proud to be commuting. Um, some people are like, I actually, And I want to be more like my white peers or my white, you know, their families. And I didn't have that kind of like. I want to be like them. I'm like, you know, their houses are nice. Like, oh, that's interesting that their moms don't work. (laughs) Um, Yeah, but it was interesting. I don't. I'm not aspiring to that. And that doesn't mean you know, like, I'm. I'm still in the same classes as them. Like, I'm in AP classes and I'm killing it too. And and I don't have to like give up or be afraid or shame ashamed of where I'm from. Um yeah
1: yeah because you knew because like you said you affirmed that what like already you were enough right and it's not and it's it's their fault that they can't see that it's not on you yeah Yeah. no that's definitely something that i think we all need if we haven't learned that yet you definitely have to learn that before you can do anything really
0: Mm -hmm. yeah all right as an adult and this is i'm just gonna read the question as it is but i think Obviously, uh, learning is a thing that is like intrinsic to who you are and just like how you move through the world. But as an adult, how are you still learning? And then what are you unlearning, if anything?
2: Yeah, so I definitely feel like I'm a lifelong learner. And again, I feel like I've, I learned that from some of my mentors. Um but I feel like I'm learning in more nuanced ways now. So um I I I learn from my dreams. I, I'm um have vivid dreams and a few years ago began keeping a, a dream dictionary so I could like write down um what I well there's actually a dream dictionary that I bought so you can like look up like I dreamed about I need that who, what does that I mean that. I need that from you <laughs> But I also was talking to someone on a poet friend that was like, you can also create your own dictionary. So like what are the themes that are popping up for you? And like you create your own definitions for what that means. And then you know, talking about motherhood, when I was pregnant, oh, those dreams were on another level of vivid. And so every night when I was pregnant I would have the most vivid multiple vivid dreams and so that part of the dictionary my dream journal is popping so much so that like after I gave birth I didn't really dream as much for a few months um so I think that that's interesting but I think that there's lessons and messages definitely from like a spiritual standpoint like you know the ancestors might be passing on something or inner child stuff might come up or um just something playful. So I think I, I'm, or I know I'm learning from my dreams. I definitely am learning from my daughter, even at 18 months. She teaches me so much. Um, again, how to play, but just I observe her just how, you know, the curiosity that she has at that age. Or um, Stan said, like, you know, she's already crunk, so she's already like <laughs> an extrovert, even though she just started daycare. So, how, like, you don't know the kids? So like, you're in the middle of the circle. Um, she, before she started daycare we had done like a weekly music and dance thing and like she loves music and dance <laughs> and, and so um yeah I'm just learning so much so, stuff that I think is still nuanced that I don't have the words for it that I'm mm-hmm. learning from her but I'm just observing so much I'm just being still and observing and like so thankful that I have this other teacher um and relatedly, like I mentioned being still a lot so far, I'm like being more still and, and listening, like even in conversations or in zoom meetings, like having a pause is, it might be uncomfortable, but that there's still like a learning there. There's still like a message that can be there. Um, and I, can I, can I interrupt you for a second? yeah, Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think, um, again, as I like spend time thinking about what this whole motherhood thing would be like, yeah and listen to people, talk about it. There seems to be, in my mind, like this idea that stillness is um, not as available to you as a mother as you are as just single person or as just like a person with a partner. Um, and so I feel like maybe that's why meditation has become important to you, But I'm curious just for you to just talk about that intersection of like trying to achieve more stillness while you're in the early stages of being of having a child. yeah, um, I think. Because I, I I did have a I did become a mother at older
2: age, so I call I'm part of the old mama gang. o a g Oh yes, <laughs> I, please. Represent, represent. <laughs> um, not advanced maternal age. Not no, geriatric no. Identity, Gosh. Old mama. Those terms gang. are horrible. <laughs> um, and but because of that, I think I'm learning a lot of, from of people who became who've been mothers for like ten years, twenty years. But I'm also learning a lot from like the narratives we have around motherhood, positive and negative, and like the narrative of like being selfless and and like stopping your life, I'm challenging that a bit. I mean, I think because you know, I did have a full adult life um, without partner or kid for 30 some, you know, three decades or more than three decades. Um I'm not like leaving that behind because I'm a mother. Um, and I, I can't be selfless if I really want to pour into this child and be a model for her. And so I'm kind of challenging and, you know, I'm in different mom groups, um, which I, I get a lot from, but I'm also learning to like, take, take what's useful and like leave what's not. And it's, it's interesting because there's so many different mom groups and they often like contradict each other. So like, wait, I'm not supposed to do this. I am supposed to do this. So all that noise, I'm like, okay, <laughs> what do I want to do? What kind of foundation and, and, um, space do I want to create? And meditation was so important to me when I was pregnant, just in like centering health and, and wholeness. And even when my daughter was like an infant, I introduced meditation to her. Um, mm. and she, I mean, she's not just like, I'm meditating, but it. <laughs> from the beginning she we were going like going by water and breathing deep breath in deep breath out and then um our favorite family cartoon is daniel tiger's neighborhood <laughs> um and daniel met, or his family's community reminds him to meditate um because he often gets anxious he of, often is very sensitive and um they have a song take a deep breath and count to four and we do that <laughs> a lot okay. So. um and then she, like, my daughter gets like 12 hours of sleep. So like, like that ministry, like she's that ministry. <laughs> and so with that 12 hours, I mean, you know, so she goes to bed like by or before 8 p.m. That means I do. And my husband and I, we do have a full evening. And so I know there are some parents that are like, I can't watch any more movies or I can't do X, Y, Z. And I'm like, yes, I can, because she asleep. Like, <laughs> I'm giving him these Netflix. Like, <laughs> and so, or I meditate, like, like Wednesday nights, it's my yoga night. And even, even after giving birth, I had to kind of go back to that, just for rest and recovery. And my husband was like, oh, that's yoga night. Like, even before my daughter was sleeping by 8 p.m., he was like, I got, I you know, I got that time. Like, go do yoga. And so, protecting that stillness is just critical for me. Mm. Love that, love that. Yeah. Okay, I again, like, you, you, as an academic, that's not intuitive either. Like you're always on, right? There's always gonna be an email. There's always gonna be a request from a peer or from a student, but like that's why healthy boundaries are so important. And you can still, again, you can still be rigorous <laughs> in your play and your work and your stillness. Um, so I was remind, my, like, I'm not an emergency room surgeon. So like I don't have I'm not, I am not have a pager and I'm I don't have to be on call in that way so how can I tend to myself as much or more than I tend to the various
0: people that look up to me or rely on me. Yeah. I think that is so it's so powerful and really encouraging to me as I think about this. I think I hear a lot of these messages that you were referring to and um it just hasn't hasn't resonated with me that I'm like like you I'm like I was single almost till I was 40 yeah and have now had a partner for several years but it's like this idea that I'm now supposed to just like throw away all of who I was and just become a mother just doesn't feel good and I'm like if that's what it takes then I'm not doing it right and so that's why I've had such struggles sometimes thinking about it um which is why I was also so excited to talk to you. Because I was like, I feel like she has some lessons in that head that I need. I mean, I'm like, I'm crafting the way, um, but it feels good to
2: like, how do I want to do this? And do it your way. Yeah.
1: And then real talk, men have been doing it that way since forever. Like, I mean, if you don't just be perfectly frank and have kids and keep, I mean, you know, keep it moving. moving. So if you got a committed partner, why, why should it be that, the woman automatically gives up, up makes all the sacrifice.
2: Yeah.
1: And then it's just the idea of like putting on your own oxygen mask yep. before you can help other people. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah. And you might've just answered this by what we were just talking about, but I interrupted you when you were about to say that, what are you unlearning?
2: Yeah. Um, I, I love this question and so much. So I, I just started a new job and during my interview, um, that was one of their questions. And I was like, I love this. Like, let us take time to kind of reflect on what are we unlearning? Um, so definitely perfectionism and the grind. Um, when I was little, my dad used to always say practice makes perfect. And then I would repeat that. No, like up now I'm at a stage, like I'm not trying to be perfect. Later, like I remember my, my doctoral advisor was uh, reminded me of the other mantra of perfect is the enemy of good. So now I'm kind of resting with that. Um, I'm not striving for perfectionism. So I'm like recovering perfectionist um, and uh, recovery. Like, I don't want to be hustling and grinding. Um, and maybe that has gotten me like where I am professionally, but um, I, I, about a year and a half ago, I met up with some friends from my doctoral program and they're like, you're so ambitious and do that, And. I'm like not no more (laughs) and not like I'm not like totally abandoning all of that but I'm just in a different pace of um yeah not trying to grind and hustle and 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 still knowing like I can still like my 70 percent is still tight you know and so I don't have to work 120. I remember like when I was younger like a young adult like Oprah was such a model for me um I don't know so much so now, but, um, but I remember like, you know, just wanting to be like, just like, like, I remember like thinking about retirement. I'm like, I don't want to retire. Like I want to always work. What? Like, who, <laughs> I don't know where these messages were coming from. I mean, I think part of that is blackness. Um, yes. I was meeting up with a friend yesterday and her father is 86. And she's like, yeah, I had to take him to work. What? Like, no. <laughs> And not from like an e- economic no. need, but just like, we got to work. And across the diaspora, this is yes. like a thing. This is
1: like and blackness. so
2: I'm more like, Uh, no, chill, like, oh, I love vacations, and (laughs) since I met my husband, even when we first dating, like, our vacations were always out of the country, and usually at somebody's beach or island, and I would not take my laptop, I'm not checking email, my out of office is okay, I would even, like, I'm a great teacher and mentor, um, but I'm on vacation, and so I would, like, be thoughtful about planning my syllabus, like, Okay, uh, reading time, you know, like even with <laughs> learners, like, um, I, so I I work hard, but I play harder. So I, I'm I'm learning perfectionism and the grind. Um, and then I also think that, particularly as a black woman in academia, um, you know, it's just it's not many of us, <laughs> and and there's not even the few of us like you know there's different philosophies about being a black woman in in academia and so sometimes and but there are a lot of like workshops about being a black woman in academia and sometimes some of the the coping mechanisms that we're told or taught are like just keep your head down and like get your papers out and get tenure and like don't look up, like, don't, don't do that. Don't, don't mentor too many students or like, don't be on too many committees and don't, 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 So I'm unlearning that, like keeping my head down, particularly now I'm in this African-American studies department. Our department is focused all on black feminisms unapologetically. And so I have a squad of like, like-minded people. And so I can't look down. I got to look up and over so that we can like do great work together. So I'm excited that to like, to cope in this, this, we're still in the academic institution, um, but to cope in a different way, in a more collegial way.
1: One of the things that resonated with me, what you said was like this unlearning of the hustle yeah. with black folks. yeah. And cause like, that's the thing, like black folks work hard. Like that's almost like, you know, I guess, I don't know if it's like the John Henryism, right? the whole idea that you're gonna, you know, carve down a mountain. And it's just crazy. But one of the things I remember my dad saying, I remember there was a point when like everybody that we kind of knew, like people were moving, like everybody was buying a big house, buying a new house. Like just, there was a lot of transition going on. And I remember my dad being like, I don't know, maybe I asked him, why aren't we moving or something to that effect? And my dad was like, we can move. I would have to work a lot harder. Like I would have to work overtime more and he was like, and then we got to get furniture for a new house, so that means you work more, and then you got to do all this stuff. And what I realized is, basic point was now you can hustle, and like it wasn't like be lazy, but it was like also, are you enjoying what you're hustling? For? Yeah, yeah. Like, are or are you just hustling to be hustling to have to just have, or at some point are you just going to enjoy what you have, and be content with what you have, and also make sure that that work that hustle is not interfering with your happiness and your family and the ways that you're connected to yourself. Like hustling for hustling's sake is just, like you say, it's just that grind that does nobody any good.
2: Yeah, yeah. And from, because I I did study public health, it's not healthy. And there's so many stories, particularly of Black women academics who have died prematurely, so young, 50s, 60s from, heart conditions from stress, like stress-related conditions, um, or even cancers, but like their health wasn't prioritized even by their institution. And so like June Jordan, when she was at Berkeley and Audrey Lorde, when she was in New York and the CUNY system were battling cancer and survived, but then got it again and asked for medical leave, asked for what they wanted, asked for space. And the institutions were like no. like, no, no. And so I'm like, these places, wherever, not just academia, like wherever Yeah, is not going to take me out.
1: Because <laughs> they're going to take you out and then replace you in a minute. Right, like, exactly. your job will be they up might, the next day. They might send you a flower, maybe. Maybe. And that's it. And you got to keep, you know, yeah. No, you definitely have to, the institutions don't love you.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think what, as I'm listening to you guys talk about that, as an entrepreneur where... Like there is so much hustle built into it, especially in these early years. It's interesting. It's interesting for me to process what you guys are talking about. Um, and I think I'm still figuring it out. Like I'm still figuring out how to time the hustling, right? Because there are just windows where I need to just do more than other other windows. But I think for myself, I as I was listening to you guys talk, I was like, you know, part of the reason I'm doing this is what you guys ended on is like the institution doesn't love you. Right. That like I'm like I will build my own space. And I will having been in places where being black is not is not easy, being a black woman in particular is not easy. I'm like I'm going to make a space for myself to be myself. I'm also going to then bring people in to let them be in a space where they can be themselves and there's something really powerful about that. But I mean I definitely don't always get right. Like I'm coming out of, um, basically August was like a super hustly time for me. And, you know, it's what the middle of September right now. And it, by the end of August, I was like, it's not okay. Like, I'm not okay. I'm not doing enough to care for my body or my mind. I feel rough, like just torn on the edges. And, I always say I'm like when my concealer stops being effective like when I put on concealer and it doesn't work I'm like you need to just go lay down because this little bit of makeup is not going to get it um so it's 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 interesting and and different and I I appreciate the reminder to stay very tuned into that and like build in self care cuz like like you talked about with your daughter. It's like if you don't take care of yourself, you don't have anything to give out. Yeah. And if I'm gonna create a space for other people to be able to live and thrive as the head of this organization, if I'm if I'm empty, there's I'm not gonna be able to create those spaces spaces thoughtfully.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, the other thing that you said that really resonated with me was like a small thing when you talk about vacation, you're like, I'm a great teacher and mentor. First of all, I just love that we have a space together where we can just say things like, I'm, good, <laughs> I'm great at this, right? Um, and so this takes us well into the next question for all of us of what is your approach to teaching? Because I think, like, LaConte, you have identified that you're a great teacher. I can tell just from the couple minutes we'll be on the phone that you're oh. a great teacher. Stan, you have taught many, many things over the years. Um, and as evidenced by your career, having been in education for so long. So for all of us, what is your approach to teaching? Yeah, I love that the the last episode I
2: believe um, you had your friend your friend team, which I love that phrase. Yeah. Um, on because I'm like, oh yeah, that's I have those too. Um, I was using bi-directional mentorship <laughs> as a phrase that <laughs> it goes both ways. Um, but that's what I do. I I I see my students as co-learners with me, co-scholars. They're not only a scholar like if they get a PhD or when they get a PhD, like they're a scholar now. Um, again. Probably learned that right at, at home or at this uh, this Black Christian elementary school, but also my um, postdoc mentor, um, who's also um, was in the AUC, um, Dr. David Thatcher, um, also a Morehouse man. Yeah. Um, and on our first day of our, and he was the former Surgeon General. He has an M.D. and a Ph.D. PhD. He um, also, he was the head as Surgeon General, the head of the CDC. Um, he has just done so much in his career. And so the first day of the postdoc, um, we were just honored to be his postdocs, but also like intimidated, like he's in front of us. Like, And he was like, I have a talk after I meet with you guys, what should I talk about during my keynote speech? And it wasn't like he hadn't prepared, but he literally was centering us as co-learners. He was like, you all just graduated from doctoral programs. You're the latest and greatest scholars. You're you know, immersed in the latest and greatest research. Like what's percolating? Like, what should I talk about? And he literally took takes what he learned from his mentees into his ongoing research. And again, he's retired, but yeah. black, semi-retired. Black retired. Yeah. <laughs> um but he and so I saw that as like a newly minted uh you know uh right after I got my doctorate and was like yeah I want to do this right like I'm a lifelong learner and I'm and and I can still learn as I teach and I mentor and so I do that and I think I'm I'm eager to look for other colleagues that do that because not everyone does like people are like um, uh bought into the banking model of like these students better learn what I teach them, <laughs> you know, whether they're five years old or like wow. 35 years old, and I just have a different way of like centering them as knowers um, and I talk a lot about like in my syllabus, even about my approaches, like my teaching philosophies in my syllabus. And one of my colleagues was like, I didn't know you could do this. Like, I didn't know you could write this on your syllabus. And I'm like, we're the curators of this. This is a contractual agreement between us and our learners. And so why not do like talk about how we approach this. And I talk about in my syllabi about creating safer and braver spaces and definitely learn that from other educators, like no place is safe. Um, but I want to create safer spaces and braver spaces. I've learned this from education scholar activists, of that opportunity to be brave, to like ask questions, to mess up, maybe not get everything right, and it's not the end of the world. You can still, we can learn together. I can call you in. Um, we can shift and and keep growing, and not like, oh, you're cast out. Like you need to get out of this class because you didn't get so and so pronouns right. Or you didn't know that answer, like you're banished. But like, no, like, can we learn together? And so that's the braver spaces I hope to create. And I realized that um, so many students were finding me, even if they weren't my students or my advisees, they would find me probably because they looked on the website and I'm a black woman and they were eager, like looking for that. Um, But they would find me and they would be so harmed by educational spaces um not just the current ones we were in or they were in but the you know from birth yeah, probably different. and so even as teaching like grad students i'm like i'm helping them unlearn so much like this isn't the topic of this class or the topic of my mentoring but i'm having to help them unlearn so much and that's why like mindfulness has been so important to bring into the classroom because they didn't think they could be scholars, even though they're in like master's and doctorate <laughs> programs, they're like, but I'm not smart. But and, and being told yeah. sometimes by my former colleagues, you yeah. know, that like, oh, you'll never be able to get a job. Oh, you know, you or and then as and, and then the racist stuff that comes on top of that. I have tons of students that were told, you need to cut your locks, you need to cut, you need to cut your nails, you need to take out your weave. Um, and these students are like surprised when something great happens to them professionally or academically because they like but I thought I wasn't enough and um I've had to center my own mindfulness even more so because I'm holding all of that like I'm holding all of that and so I can't hold it all like I'm also like not a therapist <laughs> I'm not a clinician um and I'm one person and so just realizing how not to hold it all right? And I think I've um, been really excited over the last few years that those students are finding other students, like they're making their own communities and squads and pods so that they can um, not just vent and commiserate together, but so that they can learn and grow and flourish together. And so I'm excited because sometimes I'm like, oh, you know them, you know them. And they're like, yeah, you introduced us in an email. Or, or you told us to both come to this conference and we showed up and then we we were roommates. And now we're like co, co-authors on this paper. And so I like, and I think I do that. And Stan, you know, there's like even yes. like with friendships, I'm like the connector. Yes. Um, And then I'm like, oh, y'all still friends? Like, I thought we just came to happy hour. Like y'all starting a business together, what? <laughs> so I, I I do that, I think, as or I know I do that as a teacher as well.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. Um, for me, I think this is just gonna transition right into it. Um, I was on the opposite end of the scale when I was in the classroom, elementary, first, third grade, second grade, and relationships. Like, right, it's the same kind of thing. You can't you can't teach a kid to read if you don't know that kid, right? If you can't pour into that kid, you're not gonna. I mean, it's, it's just the thing, and even now in the work that I do, because seeing it at a, at a macro scale, you can see how many, believe it or not, I shouldn't say how many, but you'd be surprised at the number of professional educators who don't want to build relationships with students. And I'm like, you have to, like if you don't have that connection and if you're not willing to make that connection, then you don't know what they don't know, A, and you don't know what they do know. And you don't know how, cause like our jobs really is like to be like when I was at my most successful in the classroom, the other thing that I really realized is that even in first grade, like what you're really doing is you're kind of facilitating their own growth. Cause first grade is like one of the big, like it's where you learn to read. And so like, yeah, you're teaching them a lot of mechanics but what you're really teaching them is practice and to believe in themselves that they can do that thing. And the only way you can teach somebody to believe in themselves is to a believe it themselves, believe like like you said, you'd be surprised at how many kids, like, and this is coming from a male teacher, how many kids you get where at age six, they've been told, I'm bad. Yeah. No, you're not bad. Like I and like, like knowing it, like no now. I have the knowledge to back it up. But I was like, no, you just needed certain things that they weren't giving you, you weren't bad. And because so-and-so like, you know, it's like the thing, right? You go to one teacher's classroom and they're like, how is this kid? I'm like, what do you mean, how is this kid? They're fine because I got to know this kid and built that relationship with them and created an environment where they felt safe and felt that they could be, you know, felt that they could express themselves and grow. So I think definitely relationships. I think the idea that learning is cooperative between each other like even at again even in first grade like you'd be amazed at how much the kids want to help and teach their friends like if you have kids who are on different ends of the academic spectrum for the time like we're in groups we're in centers i'm the face like you viewpoint kid to be the facilitator of the center okay they're modeling like they're modeling what i do they're like okay so they're telling their cloak they're they're um Classmates, sound it out. I'm like, what you know about sound, what you know about sound it out? But but like they do that and they and like the kid is like, I'm like, he wouldn't sound it out for me. So he sounded <laughs> out for like, okay, teach. And like that's like it's that relationship and that cooperation. Like you have to have those, like you said, whether you five or 35. If you don't have that, there's not any learning going on, there's not any teaching going on. So yeah, that 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 for me.
0: Yeah. Uh, for me, I think it's it's um a lot of it's based off of similar what you're saying Stan about relationships because i I was thinking I'm like when do I teach people right because i am not really officially education adjacent anymore um but like i like like I said I have a friend tease different people that I have um relationships with that i kind of speak into their lives and it's mostly through storytelling but it's only because of relationships that we have that people are willing to like, listen to me, engage me, especially sometimes I can be a little pushy. Um, I'm like, you called to tell me something. And I'm like, let me show you the lesson that you should take from that. And like, <laughs> that's not what you called me for. <laughs> However, it's, to me, it's like, um, I, I have to recognize that everybody's on their own journey, that I'm like, this is a point in your journey. But by the fact that you brought this to me, our journeys are intersecting right now. And so if I'm, this is, reminds me of something that Jamal said, that like, if it comes to you in your consciousness to like say something, like if something from your life, my life comes back to me as I'm talking to someone, I'm like, it's mine to share that. And I can trust in like my relationship with that person. I can then model sort of vulnerability, right? So I'm telling you like deep personal things that I'm only going to tell you because of our relationship, but hoping that you're going to be able to draw out the same lessons that I did from them, either whether I got it in the moment or I got it later. So my teaching is is really, comes, comes in that way that it's like, I get to let, take the lessons from my own life, which I also, and I, this is why I'm so excited to talk to you. So many things that you're saying, LaConte, just like resonate with my soul that like, I have vivid dreams, regularly pull lessons from those dreams. And now I'm, I'm like, I am going to take a notebook. I was just telling Sam, I bought a new notebook yesterday for no good reason. I it's love now my notebook. dream notebook.
2: <laughs> and
0: that's right. I need to get the link for this this dictionary that you bought, but taking all these things that I am like aware of, right. And that I like let into my consciousness officially and trying and distilling them and then passing those lessons on through stories. Um, Because, you know, it's like, like we said, like it's the lesson of understanding that you are enough um, is a hard lesson to learn as a single black woman in Atlanta who wants to be in a romantic relationship. Like it's very hard to hold that lesson that like I am enough. When you're like, yes, but I want to be married. That is the thing, right? And so I have so many lessons from that journey that I share with people regularly that I'm like, being single is a gift. Getting married late is a gift. I, from what you're talking, having a child late, not, and let's even reject the word late.
1: When you're ready. Being
0: single for a lot of your adult <laughs> life is a gift. Finding a partner late in your adult life um, or later in your adult life is a gift. And so, I um, that's how I teach these days. Is really I also cool. want um to reflect that
2: I feel like this podcast is a way that you both teach. I don't know if you knew that intentionally as educators or or not, but I feel like I've learned so much from the podcast, from the stories, and and the guests, and and you guys are always dropping gems. You're dropping things to read and watch. You're dropping terms like, let me like write that down and look it up later. And so like that's happening. So.
1: Kudos
0: to y'all. Oh. <laughs> you just made our whole day. Our whole day. Right now. <laughs> you know, we
1: love a good compliment. We, we love, love a compliment. Especially love. a shared
0: compliment. <laughs> I know. <laughs>
1: um,
0: okay. So pivoting this question of approach to uh, teaching over time, what is everyone's approach to learning over time? I feel like we might've gotten some of these bits already, but if there's anything that's still hanging out for you. So...
2: Because I had such these strong dynamic black women teachers in my elementary school, like I thought that they were always right and like the only right people, even so much like I would get in trouble with my parents because I was like, No, Miss Payne said, Miss Benson said, Miss Jackson said, and then some, like, sometimes they might have been wrong, or like, I don't care, Miss Jackson said, like, I'm not this house. House. She like, don't pay the rent. I think she don't pay the mortgage in over. this house. Yeah. I think that carried over even to like other you know as I became a, a teenager and then an adult and even like as a poet I also take poetry classes and sometimes I'm like this esteemed poet said to change this line but like what did I say or like what is intuitively or my own knowings and so I'm I'm learning or I'm shifting um like the teacher's not only the authority, right? And like, I teach like that, right? Like, I, you know, I'm telling my students, like, I don't know everything. And so I'm I'm listening to my own lessons, I think. Um, and then, yeah, as a recovering perfectionist, like, like there's not only one right answer, or I don't always have to be right, or even like just demystifying this, like right or wrong, this dichotomy. Um, I'm definitely like shifting how I learn that like how I learn answers, how I learn questions. Um, there's no one right and I don't have to be right in order to learn.
0: I, I mean just real quick before you go, Stan, I think there's just so much self-confidence in that I'm teaching you something, but I'm also saying I don't know everything. Like there's so much stillness you have to have inside to be able to say that because people could easily be like, well if you don't know everything, then why should I listen to anything you say? And shout out to
2: my graduate program. In order to be TAs, we had to take a class on pedagogy. Mm. And I know, like I know, when you all like the TF and you know the institute might have not been everything, but at least you had this like dedicated couple of months to like get something. And then I realized that like all doctoral students or who become then professors, everyone's not taking a pedagogy class. And then I took the class and then I later taught, co-taught the class. And so many academics do not know how to teach, let alone don't want to know how. And so just shout out to pedagogy courses that are taught across UC Berkeley, um, because I learned that there, that like, even as a TA, like, you know, you don't have to know everything like your, your, your job is like holding space, facilitating, and even saying like practicing saying, I don't know, but I'll find out, or I don't know, like let's find out together. And so I'm just fortunate that I learned that as a doctoral student. And so as I became um, uh, an educator in academia, I just took that with
1: me. And that is one of like, again, talking about learning from five to 35, when you tell a little kid that you don't know something that like blows their mind, but it also is like, they're like, oh, it may, and like you say, it's like it's like that vulnerability that makes you stronger. Because even at six, like they think you're supposed to be the authority on everything. But if you're like, I don't actually know that. Or if you like apologize for doing something that you know is incorrect, you can endear yourself to, you can, that is is like building a relationship with like, cause I think I was one of the first teachers to ever apologize to kids. Like when I knew I was messed up, I'm like, let me apologize to these folks. To these little ones, because they, because I was messed up, and that is when they're like, "Oh, okay, he's," I now you're modeling what you can, what they can do, so yep. they're gonna be more honest. Like Mr. Bradley, I don't know how to do this. Instead of like you being like it's wrong, you know, they, right. like that modeling of vulnerability is actually a modeling of strength, and that, like, as a society, as a United States, yeah, as Western Western culture you know that's just something that's not accepted like if you are the teacher then you're supposed to be the authority and you're supposed to hammer down that authority and that's one of those things that's really I mean like it's really powerful to to see it and to do it in practice and just for me like I think one of the things I'm learning as I get older is that maybe everything isn't a lesson like some things are just what they are and that's okay like I Like I may just be running late. Like there may not be no big message in me just being late. Like, you know, I just may be late and that's it. Like, and it's okay for that. And then the other thing I was thinking about is particularly in this time of misinformation and of, you know, just all so much content. I won't call it knowledge, but so much content that we're able to get from like the internet and everywhere that everything that sounds smart isn't smart. Mm -hmm. Like, and I, I like particularly like I'm on, you know, I I am in the COVID COVID rabbit hole. Like I get up and check the numbers every morning, and just like some of some of the, like some of the arguments for, you know, different positions. If you're listening to them at first, you're like, well, that makes sense, but then you really start thinking about it, and you're like, well, no, actually, that doesn't make sense. But a lot of people don't get through that first pass. They're like, oh, this is something that's well articulated then it must be true. Or this is something that looks like professional and looks a certain way. So therefore it must be true, it must be right. And so just learning that everything that sounds and looks right, isn't always right. Mm. And then we've kind of talked about this, just the idea of learning as a community. Learning is like, just like thinking about learning and teaching, when I was most successful at both, it was because it was a community experience. And that's something like, again, with Western culture and the way we set schooling up with grades and benchmarks and standardized tests and competition, that's a hard thing, again, to learn. And that's why I guess you, you're, it it has to come over time, but that's something that I've really discovered that I'm a collaborative learner. I'm a collaborative teacher, like, like I said, when I like, I can remember the years when I was most successful as a teacher and it was almost always, always because I had good co-teachers, a good team with me. The things that I still remember academically is because I learned them in groups with other people because we studied together, because we worked together. The opposite is like y'all know I'm a science major who didn't practice science and one of the things that I'm realizing is because in a lot of ways I was I like it was a very solitary thing to be a science major at Morehouse. Mm-hmm. Like for all the other things, for all the other great community I learned at, in the AUC, that for me was not a communal experience. And so that's probably one of the reasons why I never studied, I never did chemistry after May, after April of 1999. <laughs> I have not opened a chemistry book since then. And I think that's part of the rise because it was such a, for me, for me, it was such a solitary journey and I didn't learn as much and I didn't want to repeat that.
0: Mm. Uh, it's interesting Stan. your first point about everything not being a lesson I had the exact opposite reflection (laughs) to this question that um, I I was like I feel like so many things are lessons Um, but I think you know to your example about you know if I'm late maybe I'm just late I think I think I agree with you that that's not necessarily a lesson I think the one thing that I have taken I think on the other side of my father passing and then like other things in life that like, what's supposed to happen is what happens. And so I'm like, it's not a lesson that I'm late, but I'm like, I'm late because I'm supposed to be late. And so that helps settle me on like the tension of like, oh, I should have been there at this time. Even if I still feel some anxiety about, you know, other things that might come with that. I'm like, I might be perceived as a late person. I might be whatever. I might've missed something, whatever that I'm like, I'm, I'm supposed to be right where I am. Right. When I right? At that moment. And so, you know, who knows? I, and, you know, I'm, I kind of a dark fatalistic part of my brain. So I'm like, maybe I was a car, dangerous car accident. I would have gotten in or something. So, you know, whatever. Um, and so I think that that is a, a, another way to think about a simple, like kind of both sides of the same coin. same coin. But I think the other thing that particularly as an entrepreneur, I am holding very close to me is that failure is things that I don't even like the term failure really anymore, but like you learn from things that don't go the way you plan them. Um, And um, I also feel like lessons come back around if you don't catch them. So I'm like, let me be conscious. Like, you know, and one of the things I'm really trying to learn, and this is going to peek into my answer for the next question, but I'm still trying to, as we talked about, develop my racial consciousness so that like I really can trust when I feel like something has a racial undertone or overtone to it. Um, But, um, oh man, I just lost the train of thought, hold on. Oh, um, but I think that staying conscious to, trying to like, not just let things go by you. So as something happens, be like, all right, let me just pause a second. Like what just happened? How do I feel about what just happened? Maybe why do I feel that way? Where's this feeling coming from? And then like, is there something I can distill out of this to like take forward, Uh, which we talked about, I know the memory in the memory episode as well. So I think, you know, when things don't go well, like I'm like early in my business, I was like, one of my streams of income is going to be t-shirts. No, that that's not true. (laughs) I was like, there were months where I made like 50 cents on t-shirts and I was like, yep, nope, that's not a good place for you to put your energy move on. Like t-shirts are not going to be the way you make money. And so, you know, the, the lesson that I take from stuff like that is like, all right, like there are possible work streams, possible income streams that aren't right. Right. There are things that are possible ways that you couldn't make money, but does the amount of effort you put into that income stream that going to give you the amount of return that matches. And if it doesn't, like just investigate all of the possibilities and make sure that the effort you put into it matches. So um so yeah, you I do think they're t-shirts though I like a good t-shirt. I do. They're <laughs> on my site. They are on my website. They are great t-shirts. They're soft, they are. they're comfortable. I just don't push them anymore. Good to know. Um <laughs> So grab one. They come in lots of colors. Um and then uh definitely all the things you all have said before about learning just being a lifelong thing and not being confined to learning institutions um you know after i left undergrad i swore up and down i was never going to school again after depaul which is not a place that was particularly warm and cozy for me um and then i went to grad school had a lot of success there but then i still was like all right that's enough (laughs) like enough being in somebody's classroom um and I don't know that I will ever sit in someone's classroom again, but I think that I've like, I think I've taken away some of the negative thoughts I've had. I have about the formal learning that I'm like, if you get into a space where you're learning something that you're actually interested in and you, like you said, Stan, learn in the community are like able to kind of be yourself in that learning, then I'm like, it can be great. And so that's and not at the beginning.
2: You talked about wanting the HBCU experience. You can get that doctorate at an HBCU.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not outside the realm of possibility. I think, you know, when I think about my business, I'm like, I want this thing to be self sustaining so that it does not rely on me sitting at a computer on a nine to five kind of schedule. And then I feel like I'll be able to just be free. And I, love this building stage, but also really look forward to that stage as well, where I can be like, all right, I would like to get a whatever degree, probably not a PhD. People do not make that sound good.
1: <laughs> My
0: sister has a PhD. She did not enjoy that process. I was like, a PhD sounds awful, um, but something, learn something else. Um, so yeah, I think learning is exciting again. I, after, after some years of feeling like it was not exciting, It is exciting both to think of it as something in a formal setting and outside of formal settings. Uh, So going from that, uh, what do we all still want to learn? I know there's lots of things that will come to us, but in particular, what do you want to learn? I feel like I have
2: a lot to learn um, from um, communities that are like stigmatized and marginalized um, and just being a Black woman um, and and growing up centering that, realizing that there's like all different types of oppression. And so I'm thinking particularly around the transgender communities, I'm thinking about um, indigenous communities, I'm thinking about disabled populations. Um, I think there's this moment that we're in, right? Like we're starting meetings with like an land acknowledgement, but- mm-hmm. A lot of indigenous communities are like that's not enough right just to say like what tribe, you know, was here, Um, you know, there needs to be other work um, monetary work like Community engaged work, etc, so I think um, I definitely just want to be a good accomplice um, to other uh, marginalized communities. Um,
1: yeah. I like the word accomplice and not ally. Right. Accomplice, because accomplice, you're getting in on the crime a little bit. I love exactly. that. Exactly. <laughs> I love that. Um, for me, I this goes back to the Jamal ep, to the consciousness episode and that idea. I think one of the things that I do is I want that, and I guess this is one of the things that I'm unlearning. When I have that, that subconscious thing that I need to speak up, I always want it to be super clear and articulate. And that, that stops me from speaking up in that moment. And so I'm getting better at it. Like I'm getting better at it at work since I'm like, wait a minute, stop. I feel something. I don't know. And I, I'm getting used to saying, I don't know what I feel. I may need to write it down, but we need to stop. And wanting to get that, like you said, from that lag time between mm-hmm. the thought and articulating it. Just go mm-hmm. ahead and saying, even if it's just like, it's messed up. I don't know how it's messed up, but it's messed up. That's something that I want to learn more of and learn with consistency. And then technically, I want to learn more about the Middle East and economics. I have been, this whole Afghanistan thing, um, this whole, like, I don't know if you guys have read what's going on down in Texas with Haitian, um, Haitian refugees. I guess they're refugees what's going on down there and the the different ways that we treat people based on history. Yeah. And I don't know a lot about the Middle East. So that's something I wanna learn. And then like, because I've been in the COVID rabbit hole for a while, I just like, I am not a money person. I'm not in like, I have like zero like business sense but I want to learn a little bit more about economics. Like just some technical stuff. like. Just so that, like, when I read, like, when I re- I try to read articles about the economy now, and it's just like gibberish. It's just like, blah, blah, blah. like, I've never taken, a like, I've never taken a business course. I've never taken econ or, you know, anything like that. So I kind of just want to be able to understand that stuff a little bit better to know, like, what is again to know, like, what is good information and what's not good information. So. Hmm. Yeah.
0: Fascinating. I would help you if I remembered anything for my economics degree, but I don't. So, (laughs) um, so the things I still want to learn, we talked about this racial consciousness a little bit. Uh, and so with that sort of formally, I would love to, if, if I ever went back to school, I would want to take an African-American studies program. Cause I just feel like, you know, LaConte, you've been doing this, this call Stan does this all the time, but this is like weaving in of history, the history of black people into the stories that we know from our lives is just, I feel like so invaluable just to be able to know what what happened and how that connects, what happened to people before you, our ancestors, and that connects to people that you know. I feel like it just would be so grounding and so much um, able to broaden just kind of my understanding of what things mean. Um, and then the other two things are sort of related, um, and they're related to my deconstruction, spiritual deconstruction journey, uh, astrology, astrology has always been on the shelf of like things Christians don't do it's firmly under the, like the devil owns these things. It's like <laughs> astrology has been under there, um, which is goofy. I, I will say, I think that's just goofy. And so I'm fascinated. Um, one girl who just joined my team, we were doing our like intro onboarding call. And when I tell you, she like wove together all these things about me from that the little survey that I had done, our couple interviews and conversations we had had. And my birthday is April 17th, which I have always identified as an Aries, but I knew it was like on the edge. Cause huh? so I think, yeah, she was like, there's two different Ways that it can be divided up. One, your birthday's an Aries. Other ones, your birthday's a Taurus. And she was like, I see all these Taurus things in you. And she like gave me this. I mean, I was like, I just met you. And so to me, that's just so powerful that I'm like. Rising sign, moon sign is all important. I don't know any of it. it helps and so with your partners, with your colleagues. I'm telling you, it's so interesting to me. And I don't know how to learn it. So I feel very intimidated by it. Because I know that there's a bunch of hogwash out there and, you know, I don't know if it's like Miss Cleo or where to go. (laughs) And so I just, I feel intimidated by it. I wish somebody would give me like. There's a book that I found like back in the day. That was like my first entree. It's called Black Sun Signs.
2: Okay. So start start there. Um, I, I know in the more recent years, there's probably been a plethora of things, but like I started with that. I feel like when I was in college
0: love that thank you and we will link and i'm an aquarian so like aquarians are really into astrology so that's why i'm like i love that (laughs) okay great so very excited about that and then secondarily with that is like i want to learn more about other spiritual traditions um again connecting back to black history is like what are some of the things that like our ancestors believed um before there was this colonial version of christianity and and all of it. I just feel so I feel like there's so much that I don't know. And I feel like it would help me to figure out what to do next because I feel like the deconstruction journey is one thing, but then you have to kind of reconstruct something. Like I I want to reconstruct something. And so I don't know. Like I feel in this kind of wastelandy place right now. And so I feel like I need to start just kind of reading and understanding so I can like build something, like a, a, a faith foundation that I feel good about. So so that's it for me uh y'all this has been amazing
1: yes it has. Akonte, it has. we
0: have been blessed by having you on this uh all right so what's up for you akante
2: so i mentioned i moved i recently my family and i moved a month ago um to a new state <laughs> a new region a new house so what's up for me unpacking um you see, oh, are you Allison? You were like, oh, your bookshelf. Like those I top use- three rows. What's <laughs> in the <laughs> square? Those watching, those are together. But like the plethora of boxes that I'm swimming in. Um, so unpacking and, not, and like making this a home um, is definitely on deck. Um, uh, I'm now a Midwesterner or at least living in the Midwest. <laughs> um, so I'm going to listen for life. Into
1: some- Cali for life, you always will be Cali. <laughs>
2: I'm gonna to re-listen to some of the podcasts, Allison, as you talk about, <laughs> uh, even though that's home, that's not home, but I'm gonna uh-huh. listen with a different ear. Uh-huh. Um, but definitely yes, Cali love Cali for Life, wherever I go. But um, I'm excited to like have a different pace. Um, I've always been a city girl and lived in you know West Coast, the south and northeast. And I'm like excited to see like what what's popping here and and um just a different pace. Um, I'm excited to like invite that in. Um and yeah like I said like when baby girl goes to sleep I definitely try to catch up on shows so the new season of Queen Sugar just started um (laughs) Wu-Tang the American Saga is on and um my my husband's a New Yorker and and is a hip-hop head so um I'm liking the story and definitely like you know mentally Wu-Tang's music but i didn't know like I'm like I need a chart because not only are there a zillion members of Wu-Tang they all have a zillion names individually and so like I need a type of chart when I'm watching and then the actors that are playing them I'm like wait who's he again and so I'm getting into it but also like getting a little lost but um what network is that on I feel like we got a stream of it. I don't know what it officially comes on. Um, okay. I feel like it might be it, HBO
1: Max. But... Maybe
2: HBO Max. Um, okay. It's called Wu-Tang, an American Saga. Yeah. Okay. And it's it's kind of dope because in addition to telling their story, I feel like it is, you know, having lived in New York for eight years, like I feel like I get a little bit of um, understanding around um, like New York in the, in the 90s. Like, you know, we heard their music, but like, oh, yeah. what was really going on? And they're from Staten Island, which is like, the forgotten, stigmatized borough of New York. So, um, I feel like there's like some urban history going on in there. And then um, some of the members actually move to the Midwest um, to kind of like get away from the crime in, in New York. And so that's. But then there's crime in the, everywhere, right? And so there's like this hustle shenanigans section in the Midwest. So I don't know. I'm like really into like the urban ethnography of okay. of, of the Wu Tang. All right.
0: Uh, what about you, Allison? Um, so I have two shows that I'm really into right now. Um, one, we, we signed up for Apple TV plus, cause we were watching Ted Lasso. So they totally hooked us in. We got the free trial and we're like, great, we'll just race through these and then cancel it. Yeah. They're doing that one, one at a time thing. So we're in, so I was like, all right. Uh, so I was like, well, let me see what else is on here since I'm paying for this. So, and I, since I'm not at home right now, uh, I'm in Orlando with my mom for a little bit. I couldn't watch any show that I've watched with Lance. So I had to start new shows so that I don't break the, like we watch these shows together. So anyway, I found the morning show, which is um, kind of like the whole Matt Lauer scandal thing from whatever their show was. Good morning. The Today Show. The Today Show. Yeah. So it's basically like that. And um, Jennifer Aniston is like the Katie Couric. Steve Carell is like the Matt Lauer. And then they have the scandal and so it's actually really interesting uh it has there's a lot of whiteness in it so just I'll leave it at that and so if you can just go past that then it's an interesting story um the other thing that I'm super into and I've almost finished with the season is sex education on Netflix is back for season three they have been gone I think they were getting ready to start filming the third episode right when the pandemic started so there's been like a longer than usual gap these people are supposed to be in high school I'm like sir you have a retirement (laughs) account you are 29 30 35 what anyway so um it's great I highly recommend it it's weird it's British there's a lot of sex so if that's a thing don't watch that but the thing I really have been so tuned into and this is the same thing that was true of Schitt's Creek is that diversity is not called out. Like it's just, it's just diverse and it's diverse in ways that I have not seen. So there's a quadriplegic character. um, There is a trans character and it all just is like, it's just like this, not like, oh, this girl is trans. Like there's a little bit of a storyline about that. Not girl, excuse me. This person is trans and um, there's some storyline about it, but it's not like oh they have to be with another trans person like it's and so there's like a conversation of um a cishet person who's interested in the trans person and like what that means for the two of them but and then there's the the person just is in a romantic relationship with somebody and it's just fascinating how it's just and, and not fascinating it feels right that it's just all kinds of people all expressions of people sexuality ability and it's just there and they're just yes. telling the story of these people. And so it's really good, really good for that reason and many, many others. So
1: Stan, what about you? Um LulaRoe via the Lula Rich document. I don't know if you guys documentary. I I'm... just
0: heard about this for the first time like two days ago. So tell me this what it is. Thing, you, know, <laughs> I, you
1: know, I love some rich white folks shenanigans. <laughs> and this thing is some shenanigans. First of all, I so I think I've been off Facebook for like going on, maybe. Four or five years? I feel like I was going to say eight. It's been a long time. Yeah, it's been a long time. So so I had never heard of this LuLaRoe thing at all. Like apparently, and so apparently it was really big on Facebook, which is why I had never heard of it. But for those of you who don't know what LuLaRoe is, it is an apparel company, a fashion company that worked as a MLM, a multi-level marketing company. And it basically charts its growth and its demise, and it's all these people that are wrapped up in it. It is. Um, it was founded by this couple who are members of the Church of Latter Day Saints. Um, so there is lots of subtext to it around race because it's mostly white working white women who stay at home. There is, um, again, the religious subtext to it. It's just fascinating. Like part of the reason it fascinated me is because it's like a billion dollar company and I'd never heard of it. And like, you know, and I feel like a lot of people don't know about it. And the other thing is it's just like, once you dig really deep into, cause you know, you hear about like the MLMs and stuff like that. But once you realize how really kind of, predatory those things are just based on their setup and how if you're not an early adopter, you can't win. And what was really more interesting was that once I started watching it, I read a couple of um, articles. I read an article by this lady named Anne Helen Peterson. She write, she wrote for BuzzFeed. Now she does her own thing. But she talks a lot about how she writes about what was missing from the documentary. And one of the things she talks about was like how you know, certain MLMs target certain communities. So like Herbalife targets us. And it's just fascinating, like how they get you hooked, but they all use the same like premise and how they get you hooked and how these white women were like buying these tights and like bidding on tights on Facebook live. And the the other thing is these tights are ugly. Like they're not (laughs) cute. Like it's like crazy pattern, like it's not, it's not anything. Apparently they were really comfortable, but how this, it goes like, this lady's crazy. Like she's getting people to go have weight loss surgery in Mexico. Like there's a whole that, yeah. I'm like, there's this whole thing Just about it re-
0: into the tights.
1: Like as part of, cause so the thing is, the thing with MLMs is you have to project that you're making money, right? Like it's, it's not about the product. It's not about the tights The Cause the way you make money is to build your team. Right. So, and how do you build your team? You tell people you make a lot of money in it. If you're making a lot of money, then you're driving a Benz. You're retiring your husband. And see like, yes, you're retiring your husband, but also like it's Mormon. So you're telling women (laughs) that, you know, this is a way for them to keep their stay at home lifestyle and encouraging those traditional feminine roles. But you're also like backdooring the fact that you don't think this will be successful unless your man is involved, unless your part, unless your husband is a part of it. Like, right, like we're trying to grab the whole family. So then you're indebted to this company, right? Mm. Like you're pulling in dad. So now everybody is wrapped up in a Little row. Fascinating. <laughs> Fascinating. Wow. And like there's this one black girl. <laughs> there's this one black girl. She has like the lot of the documentary. So like they go on all these cruises, like they have these Katy Perry concert. Mario Lopez, Kelly Clarkson, like they're making money hand over fist and just spending it. But this black, so there's this black girl who worked for the company initially, and then she started being what they call a retailer. And so they like asked her to go on the cruise, and she's like, "I'm just gonna be honest. White folks on a boat. That many white people on a boat. She was like, "I'm good. She's like, "I'm good. I'll sell the I'll sell the tights, but she's like, "I'm not going on that boat with all the white people. And I was like, "Okay, you're not crazy after all. <laughs> So yeah, definitely watch it. The first two—I will say the first—it's four four parts. The first two episodes are definitely better. The the um the resolution—they like—they could have done so much more with it, but it's just definitely—it's like interesting. Like I said, rich white folks shenanigans—it gets what, me every. What it, network is it on? It's on Amazon Prime.
0: Okay.
1: Yeah, rich white folks shenanigans get me every time. They do. My, well, my we family. should.
0: We have to link all these in the show
1: notes, if you Yes, we, <laughs> we definitely will, because we look. We went from Wu Tang, which right. is reminding me of my college roommate <laughs> freshman year, who was from NARC <laughs> 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 to Lularoe. So we can, We got you. We got you covered. We're here for all of it. All of it. All of it. So, I think we've come to the end. Before we go, um, Lakante, how can folks work with you? Get in touch with you. Just let us know what's going on with you right now.
2: Sure. So I'm um, on Twitter, mostly tweeting more like professional academic scholarly things at Doc Dill, D-O-C-D-I-L-L. I Um, I just launched my website. It it was a long time coming. People, the streets have been waiting. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But um, LeConteDill.com, that's L-E-C-O-N-T-E-D-I-L-L.com just launched about a month, month and a half ago. Um, So, like all of me is there, my, my full selves of uh, the poetry, the mindfulness, the scholarly, the black feminist, everything is there. So definitely check me out there. And, and also events um, are posted there, uh, my poetry, like I said. Um, but also I encourage folks to stay tuned to what we're doing here at Michigan State University As I said, our African-American studies department is centering Black feminisms, Black genders, Black sexualities, all with an S because there's multitudes. We contain multitudes. So check us out. Um, We're growing um, in size and number, but also in the ways that we do work and the ways that we disrupt uh, traditional white stream (laughs) academia. And so stay tuned to what's popping events virtually, in person when that's safe, but also just ways to connect community um, in academia.
1: All right.
2: And I visited the
1: website. It's beautiful. I love it.
2: Right? So um, um, all of the current or the the previous faculty have sonic introductions on there. So they have their own mixtapes. To introduce themselves. And we just found out on Friday in our staff meeting that the new faculty are going to create mixtapes. So stay tuned for oh, my I love stuff. That. I'm so excited about that. I'm like, that's my favorite part of, <laughs> of onboarding. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I'm going to have my mixtape out to introduce you to
0: me in a different way.
2: Dope.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much. We are honored and we're so excited uh, to be able to share this conversation. And we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you for this opportunity. Bye. Bye. Support for this podcast comes from Lilacs on York Creative Studios.
1: The Family Meeting is produced by me and Allison.
0: Our theme song is by Will Salua and it is entitled 135th and Coffee.
1: You can find the show notes on what we discussed, including links posted in the blog section on lilacsonyork.com.
0: And you can keep up with the show on Instagram at Lilacs on York and on Twitter at the Meeting. You can also now watch us have these conversations on the Lilacs on York channel on YouTube. You can find me on social at Allison K. Mason on IG and Twitter, even though I do not
1: tweet. You can find me on social at Twice 11 on IG and Twitter, even though I do not post on IG. Thanks for listening. Meet you here next week.